Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So one of the big questions about Game 2 was whether the Bucks had found something with Giannis, whether he was going to be a major problem for the Suns on offense. Suns, a very good defense. And game one, they really kind of shut the Bucks down. Game two, they outscored them, but Giannis had a very nice offensive game. And there are many things to discuss, obviously, about why the Bucks won this game. But it starts with the fact that Giannis Nakupo was by far the best player on the floor, has had one of the best games in finals history, and he has just dominated every aspect of this game, even the foul line. Yeah. And not comparing the two, but when you think I, it, you brought up when we were doing the hot mic broadcast about like how he looks when he hits his free throws was the like Will Chamberlain hitting his free throws is how the hundred point game happened. But Giannis through three quarters had scored his number 34 points, 12 rebounds, six assists on 11 of 18 from the field. And as you mentioned, 12 of 15 from the free throw line, he was completely dominant on offense for the second game in a row. And he was impactful on the defensive end, of course, as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And his ability to switch the Suns don't have Kevin Durant who and Kyrie Irving who took advantage of him as a switch defender early in that net series. Since then, he's been very effective. He was effective on Trey Young. He's been pretty effective on Devin Booker. He's been pretty effective on Chris Paul as a switch defender. And that has been a big part of why this Bucks defense uh, has been so much better than it was in the first couple of games. So that's been huge. And he hasn't necessarily been doing a lot of it off the dribble. He does have six assists. Four offensive rebounds have been big as they've completely destroyed him on the offensive glass. Bucks with, uh, at one point, a 20-0 to lead in second chance points in this one. But just physically, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's ducked in. Uh, when he's had a chance to go against someone like Bridges, who is so worried about trying to body up to him that he can spin off of him, that's looked really good as well. Only taking two three-pointers, which he missed. And it's just, it's been all around the rim, really. I mean, what does his shot chart look like here as we're uh, recording this late in the fourth quarter with the Bucks firmly in control? So Giannis' shot chart for the contest so far, 12 of 12 in the restricted area two of five from floater range and then oh for five for on jump shots so that's three mid-rangers two threes and that that ratio of paint shots to jump shots is fantastic for Giannis and when you add in the 17 free throw attempts and those were generated around the basket and I think for me one great encapsulation of it is by virtue of DeAndre Ayton's foul trouble in the third quarter the Suns mostly because Frank Kaminsky was terrible and for everything and because they still had a lot of their best players on the floor the Suns went to a very small lineup they brought in Cam Johnson for Ayton when he got in foul trouble and so they're playing Crowder at center and, and playing Johnson alongside the other starters and offensively those lineups I thought worked well for the Suns and they have a lot of offensive talent it's not a huge surprise eventually the Suns had the you know the, the Bucks took Brooke Lopez on the floor there wasn't anybody off the floor there wasn't anybody for him to guard and what I thought really turned the tide after Phoenix 
cut the margin was them not being able to stop Giannis in any way whatsoever. No, that was the case. Now, the fact that Devin Booker was terrible and the Suns just couldn't score, they gave up a 16-0 run at the end of the third. Like that, that didn't help much. Booker wasn't out there for all of that. Uh, The Suns' lack of depth, the lack of Dario Saric came back to hurt them in this game as well. I mean, particularly once Aiton got into foul trouble. And of course, once you get four fouls in the third quarter, you can't play. Even if you're down 15 and the game's slipping away, you need to be saved for the fourth quarter. Everyone knows that. But, uh... The, but the lack of any viable big anyone really who could do much of a job on Giannis you know they went to this zone in the third and that flummoxed the Bucks a little bit and but Drew Holiday also hit four tough three-pointers in the third which was massive against that zone but when the Bucks even worked it around at all when they got Giannis a touch against that zone they were able to get great stuff guys cutting along the baseline a ton of offensive rebounds and they're playing Jay Crowder at center and they just they did not have the size and physicality that was needed in this one so yeah and and one one wild stat on that that the broadcast had Giannis became only the third player in NBA history to have consecutive 40 and 10 games in the finals the other two being Shaq in 2000 and LeBron in 16 wow yeah that's pretty yeah it was game five and six uh, against the Warriors back-to-back 41 point games no this has been really impressive and particularly for Giannis given where he is from an injury standpoint game one he clearly wasn't himself I mean, game he, two he hyperextended yeah. his knee what was it like 10 days ago and yeah it had, might be a little more than that yeah, now but it's it's unreal. it's pretty impressive I mean we even after we heard that there was no ligament damage we thought it was unlikely he'd be able to come back and be effective and very unlikely he would start game one and he did that game two he was very effective even though he still was kind of limping around but game three now he wasn't limping around at all like he looked like the full version of Giannis and that is something that the Phoenix Suns just have not been able to deal with uh these last two games so I mean we'll talk about adjustments in a little bit but what else did you want to hit on from this game well I, I thought that the Suns had a lot of things and and mostly to their credit go really well for them in the first two games and so I wondered you know like one of my kind of theories was that there would be a game and I'm, I'm not saying I'm ascribing to this anymore because game game three changed my thinking to some extent. There'd be one, one game while in Milwaukee where things went well for the Bucks and things went poorly for the Suns. And then one game where it was a little bit closer and then it was going to be who won that game was going to really determine what happens in this series, whether it was a, a close Suns win or a Bucks win or anything like that. And this game kind of broadly speaking fit the description of everything going wrong for the Suns, whether it's DeAndre and DeAndre. And I'm not saying like that's the Suns being bad and the Bucks being good or anything like that. It's like DeAndre Ayton's foul trouble, Devin Booker having a brutal night and having to play Frank Kaminsky, some of the other. So like overall, like is it, this was and the Suns in the early going couldn't hit a three. They were two of 14 in the early going. They eventually course corrected pretty well there. Eventually, though, the Bucks still shot better than them. So I think each of those is worth going through a little bit and I think we should start honestly of those we already brought up the eight and thing a little bit with Devin Booker yeah and Booker one of seven from three he was seven of 12 in game two and some of those were pretty tough looks uh, others there were some miscommunications I thought he missed some pretty makeable shots in the first particularly when in pick and roll against Giannis he got a couple of open looks where Giannis wasn't stepping up very quickly to switch and so as soon as he came off the screen against Giannis he could pull the three but he wasn't able to make those and then only two assists for Booker as well so it's not like he was getting in and forcing help I thought that the not only was the on-ball defense better for Milwaukee and whenever Drew Holiday was on 
book where he really gave him problems but you know holiday also spent time on paul but even when it was someone like Connaughton or milton i thought the bucks did a much better job of helping but not helping quite as obviously when booker was trying to work into the mid-range when paul was trying to work in the mid-range and just to step over dig in and then quickly retreat back to their men rather than just putting their whole body in front of guys at the nail and then just allowing a, an easy one pass three-pointer and so you mentioned that the sun shot so poorly two of 13 from three in the first half well a big part of that isn't necessarily the two makes uh and many of those of course came off the dribble as well rather than catch and shoots but it was just only 13 shots right there were 20 of 40 from three in game two and they still weren't getting killed at the room Aiton got some nice slips and some nice duck in post-ups but they cleaned that up largely after the first quarter always seems like Aiton has a great first quarter and then that they kind of clean that up a little bit and you know, I thought you know, Chris Paul wasn't just like walking into jumpers. He was able to, um, you know, they're able to at least make his looks contested enough. He'll make some of them, but he's not killing you there. So I thought the Bucks' defense overall was really good in this game. And maybe that would have changed if the Suns had hit some more shots to kind of open things up. But uh, they had fewer mistakes. There are some in the first on switches, but not that many. So very good defensive performance by the Bucks. Another important part of the story of this game was the totally wild third quarter where it looked like things were going to get really out of hand for the Suns because they trailed by 13 points. They were 15 at the half, 13 points when DeAndre Ayton committed his fourth foul and then and Monty Williams pulled him then the Suns rally because they have so much shooting on the floor they have a lot of offense they push the margin all the way down to four it's 74 to 70 with 522 to go and then a huge response by the Bucks largely in Bobby Portis minutes no no Portis was in for part of it then Brooke was in for part of it they pushed the margin all the way back out from four to 22 at the end of the third yeah and the game was basically over at that point looks like we, we can give you Giannis's final line now with 41 points 14 to 23 13 to 17 from the foul line six assists four offensive rebounds really one of the best NBA finals games that that you're going to see by anyone against a what's been a pretty good de- defensive team um but yeah that run obviously coincided with the presence of one Frank Kaminsky who at one point was negative 13 in five minutes part of the Bucks run in the second quarter as well when they pushed out to a, a 20 to a 6 fif- I believe yeah a 15 point lead uh, as well the the Suns actually led it 36 30 at one point in this game after an 8-0 run and then the Bucks came back to close out the half and there's just yes there was the eight and foul trouble and you might feel like hey you can't go small all the time against these guys but Kaminsky just isn't the answer I mean I think more whether it's more Abdel Nader yeah he got ducked in by Giannis it didn't look great but Kaminsky just doesn't give you anything on either end right he can't offensive rebound he can't finish at the rim they don't really even have him picking and popping which is the only thing that he does offensively but he's not even really a great shooter on that and then defensively he doesn't protect the rim he can't switch he's not really an intelligent pick and roll defender he's I mean, not he really can't, a good he can't play any rebounder. defensive scheme like you can't do him in a drop he doesn't deter anything he's not a horrendous help defender we saw that in this game sorry i i interrupted your train of thought on frank kaminsky to do my uh that, that's okay i think i think we've uh we've well, and, pretty and much so covered it on him here's the other problem with this 
is, yeah, you're not going to go small all the time. The other thing you can do is play DeAndre Ayton, you know, just because he has four fouls. I mean, especially in that stretch afterwards. So I said on the live broadcast, I, w- I would have pulled him when Monty did, but then bring him back after a few minutes, you know, kind of st- in some ways stagger your non-Ayton minutes. And by having him out that long, and yes, Ayton did pick up his fifth foul almost immediately after he came in in the fourth, but the game was basically over by that point anyway. And Kaminsky doesn't really bring anything to the table. And it's it's a huge problem. It wasn't the only confounding coaching decision that Monty Williams, who has had an unbelievable playoffs and, you know, an unbelievable regular season, had. And the other one, especially when you consider his struggles in game two, though this is not the same, he's, that, that wasn't predictive for Chris Middleton, was this just complete random doubling, which may have partially been Jay Crowder freelancing, but I mean, they did it enough that it seemed like it was the scheme in the second quarter, which I thought really opened things up for Milwaukee when they started on that first run. Yeah, they were trapping Chris Middleton off the pick and roll for some reason when he was running it with Giannis when like, you know, Chris Middleton hasn't had an awesome series necessarily. Like if you're like they're in theory a good offensive team like if you're you think that because the point of trapping him is to prevent Chris Middleton from getting a decent look at a mid-ranger and so what ended up happening was Aiton wasn't guarding Giannis I guess due to some of the fouls they had Crowder on Giannis so and it also you would think that part of the point of having Crowder there is so that he could switch now you don't want to get stuck with a guard on Giannis but maybe you could also then just try to kick out behind the play uh do a scram switch get Aiton onto to Giannis after that but they instead they put two on the ball Milton the signature play was Giannis rolls to the rim Aiton has to help off the strong side corner because Giannis is just going to go down for an easy dunk and then they just threw it to Portis in the corner for a wide open three which uh, didn't really make a ton of sense they didn't play Paul that many minutes I think he played like 16 17 minutes in the first half and given that they had two days off and then they also have two days off again like that was kind of surprising to me uh, particularly with Booker going so poorly yeah and Booker only ended up playing 29 minutes in the competitive portion well depending on how we're 29 minutes in the game how much of that was the competitive portion is is, is open for discussion and I, I thought that Drew Holiday having having a big bounce back performance was a very important part of it we brought up the the shots that he hit in the third quarter but the overall line for Drew 21 points Five rebounds, nine assists, eight of 14 from the field, five of 10 from three, plus 22 game high in 40 minutes of action. Still playing 42 when this game was such a controlled margin towards the end. But Holiday, he had some phenomenal defense. We already talked about a little bit on Devin Booker, but hitting his shots and trimming out some, but not all of the fat, taking away some of those worst shots made a world of difference. Yeah, and I think he had a pretty nice passing game. He had some flubs early, but then he threw a couple of really nice dimes to the weak side out of pick and roll. He had some really nice laydown passes, like that one in transition where he gets the steal, goes behind his back, gets it back, goes up, and then lays it back for Portis. Had another nice pass uh, underneath. I think it was to Brooke Lopez. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Holiday, uh, particularly given the incredible defensive burden that he has, uh, I think Pat Connaughton did a pretty nice job defensively as well. There was one period where they just kept going after him time after time. And it looked like he got a little tired, but he continued to compete and that didn't end up really killing him too badly. I thought actually it was more that the Bucks were so worried about him and had to overhelp on him or felt like they did. And then they gave up a, a couple of threes there, but really just a, a very nice overall game from the Bucks. Even in a game when they didn't shoot that well through the competitive portion, they had about a 130 offensive rating and they're only shooting, you know, 32, 33 percent they're shit but at least they hit just enough threes right they started three out of 15 and then they went on a, a 
pretty decent stretch this is a crazy stat from kirk goldsbury through three quarters Giannis, middleton and holiday had scored or assisted on all but two of the box points incredible and when you think and about po- that, yeah. how what you can get in transition that's often unassisted and everything else um yeah i wonder Portis if that had would... uh two free throws which who knows maybe they maybe they assisted is those free throws uh, as well yeah so, so what, anything else you want to talk about here from uh, the meat of things the cam johnson dunk oh yeah and uh, just a terrible challenge from bud too but yeah that was just a complete destruction they were trying to actually just double chris paul in the backcourt just to get it out of his hands and just mess up their overall offense and have him run some more time down which i don't mind that strategy but then they just threw it over the top but if you're gonna if you're gonna do that the other three players have to have some sort of battle plan and cam johnson just basically waltzed to the dotted line and then took off from the goddamn dotted line and pj tucker first of all i hate that players try to take a charge there because there's a risk for injury and everything else but also tucker was moving when cam johnson took off and that is the point that matters is when cam johnson takes off pj tucker takes it in the chest but he wasn't there when cam johnson took off and cam johnson detonates on his face well and that's this is also a great example of why my preferred solution for fixing the charge of having the charge circle just be larger it, like this is a perfect encapsulation like he's outside the restricted area but you shouldn't be able to take a charge on a play where a guy can dunk it you know like that's just number one it's very dangerous and number two you're just too close to the basket if you can get dunked on and draw a charge in theory so uh and tucker certainly would have been better off if he just jumped he probably wouldn't have gotten dunked on but so anyway that i mean that was one of the best dunks that we've seen in the finals in a long time that was just a complete destruction and uh cam also had a nice little reverse later on definitely is showing some pretty good athleticism in this but i guess it's time to turn now to what phoenix can do differently here it's time for them to adjust i mean number one is the massive Giannis problem that they have and that's not a problem with a clear solution that i can think of i mean you can try to form a wall a little bit but something i loved that Giannis did over these two games especially but really in game three when they sent extra guys to him the bucks his bucks teammates often made good decisions cuts and movements and all that and Giannis was finding them and so sometimes what happens in these circumstances is you sell out to stop the star and then you get really good looks for players who can make good looks yeah the bucks eventually finished 39 percent from downtown and they made nine of their last 21 from three and holiday and middleton were uh, a combined eight out of 17 those are the guys who got up the most three-pointers Connaughton continues to shoot it pretty well he was two out of four that's always a, a random need for this team uh, to get something from him however i think they just need to be more aggressive in terms of helping on Giannis. and anytime that he spins you just got to get a second guy there load to him a little bit more in transition now the bucks deserve credit for varying their attack a little bit to be sure where he can get offensive rebounds he can get ducks it duck ins uh he can be the screener and roll to the basket in pick and roll as well um you know the suns don't necessarily have guys where they can switch the middleton Giannis pick and roll and then still have enough size on Giannis, but maybe you need to front there and get some more help now that you might leave brooke lopez open for some threes or bobby portis you, you may end up just having to live with that as well i mean i, I think just forcing the bucks to make more passes and not just let one pass happen like to play almost buck style defense against the bucks where you're just going to help more give up some more threes this hasn't historically been a good three-point shooting team in the playoffs they might make them uh but and you can't you can't give up 
17 free throw attempts and 12 of 12 at the rim to Giannis like you just have to bring more help and part of that would be if they had Aiton available and I think you know maybe they what they need to do also is maybe you switch that Giannis Middleton pick and roll with Bridges and Crowder and then you have Aiton try to kick out and guard Giannis after that while you have maybe Bridges go find Lopez or Portis whoever or Connaughton whoever else is out there because they really like I don't think Aiton does the greatest job on Giannis any anyway individually which is kind of another problem that they have but you know we've seen the teams that have had success against Giannis like Miami last year and Brooklyn this year just bring more help and have more guys at the elbows and if he puts his back to goal bring that guy in to try to tip the ball away and I would argue he's playing at a higher level than he was in some of his earlier series but they're not really they don't have the same strategy well, of really loading to him I one, would say. one way to quantify how the Suns are not threatening the Bucks in the same way as other teams through three quarters Milwaukee had seven turnovers and only two of those were light ball so that's a part of why the Suns couldn't really get fast break points they were only credited with six during those quarters and in total six in the game and so yeah at times being more aggressive getting those pressures you'll give up some good looks but you'll also force some contested shots you'll also get some turnovers and all of those would make a big difference yeah i also think that when Aiton is off the ball he should could be more active as a help defender i thought he was late on some help rotations in this game and this was before he was in foul trouble as well he didn't really get into foul trouble until a very a very questionable call i would say on middleton Chris Paul must be really upset that uh, Scott Foster gave up 13 offensive rebounds to the Bucks in this game. That's well, and, and that's, uh, uh, so super upset and, and, that uh, Scott Foster tied his teammates' hands behind their backs so they couldn't box out on a lot of those and just stand there. Yeah, and uh, Scott Foster gave up 16 fast break points uh, to the Bucks uh, as well. That must have really enraged him. Uh, but no, I mean the Suns obviously didn't score very well in this game. I did think there was. If you want to argue one thing, if you're the Suns. It would be that third foul on Eaton uh, really hurt him. But, you know, guys are going to get called for questionable calls throughout the course of the game. And they're already down 15 at that point. And they got back into it to some degree without Eaton when they, they went to that five out group um so i think that's part of it you know the suns don't really have a lot of options in terms of personal i mean i've had even people talking about like they should try jalen smith i mean that's you're just not going to do that for a guy who hasn't even played in the regular season much less the playoffs now maybe if phoenix had gotten blown out badly enough in this game that they wanted to just play jalen smith and see whether he could execute some of the stuff they're doing and try to get some confidence in him as a coaching staff but i I mean he's not very strong either like i don't think he's you know you put him in there to guard Giannis. that just seems like it's just pretty impossible and uh, offensively they didn't have great stuff with the bucks switching the bucks i don't think the suns got many open looks if any off of just the confusion caused by some of their spain pick and roll package as a way to get booker going more yeah it's tough and you know maybe just they they could go to more kind of iso type of stuff for him well and post up stuff against middleton off ball into something else like not necessarily a spain but i think i think maybe you could do could do some things there force the force the bucks to communicate force them to react yeah the, i mean another thing that maybe to keep in mind too is that the bucks generally have not switched off ball actions unless yep. it's the the spain pick and roll so maybe just some more wide pin downs for booker or more even just like regular pin downs where he starts down on, on the block and pops out curls into a mid-ranger we'll see 
see whether the Bucks would switch that or not. But this is a pretty good Bucks defense. They're starting to find a little bit of a rhythm against these Suns, even though the Suns had a crazy offensive rating in game two. I thought that the Bucks were getting pretty close to finding a decent strategy and that they just had so many small failures of executions on individual possessions, but that it wasn't just like, oh, the generally what we're trying to do isn't working with the switching and also having a holiday on Chris Paul like they weren't giving up just like unbelievable looks against normal stuff they were just when they'd make mistakes or gave up offensive rebounds that's when it led to a lot of problems I don't really have any other adjustments but so how I thought about kind of ending this is how does this change the way we think about the series I mean we both thought the Bucks had a you know the Bucks had a pretty good chance to win one or both home games with that they could play better that they might have found something in game two but this was a pretty thorough win how 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 do you feel about the series now yeah it does seem like for the Bucks to lose one at home the Suns are going to need a really good shooting performance and the Suns gave them that for maybe the first 12 to 15 minutes of this game and then they kind of fell off they ended up nine out of 31 from three they were hitting a lot of difficult mid-rangers so it'd be nice to see the Suns try to get some more threes I think they're going to look at the film and find that there are times when the Bucks were helping that they could take a little bit more advantage of to get some open threes definitely liked all like the eight and duck and stuff and you know he had 18 points in 24 minutes so I think just continuing to try to look for him more than they have been uh, against switches and deep deep post-ups and slips although the Bucks, as I mentioned like through the course of this game kind of cleaned up some of those plays they're probably a little worried about going after offensive rebounds due to the Bucks transition game now that Giannis is back to being himself and pushing the ball in transition so I don't know that I would be trying to push harder on the glass necessarily and well and something that I think is is interesting about this is I my personal feeling is that there is more for the Suns to clean up offensively than defensively and that's what makes me think about the series a little bit differently is that the Bucks, if Giannis, if this, maybe not like this level of production, but the athleticism and work and everything else, if that's, the, you know, kind of the rough area of the Giannis, we will see in some games, if not all of them, the rest of the series. I don't think there's a ton that they can do. There are a few things that they can do to counter that. Um, just with the personnel they have, they really only have one true big in the rotation and they don't even have any that they could dust off that seem like they could really be a solution there. So it's tightening up the offense, making this a shootout is, I think, their their best chance. And I mean, the Suns are still up 2-1 with home court advantage in this series. But where I thought the equilibrium in this series was maybe like a Suns, a Suns win by four or five points, I'm not so sure of that anymore. No, and I, I said after game two that I was going to favor the Bucks in games in Milwaukee, and I think that is kind of the case. But we'll find out, obviously, on Wednesday whether we have a series or not. And again, I just want to say how good Giannis was oh, tonight. Incredible. And, I mean, playing, because I thought, particularly early in that Brooklyn series, like, this guy's supposed to be the defensive player of the year. He's not able to guard out on the floor. Like, it looked really bad with him switching. And, you know, maybe it's just because he's not going against Kyrie Irving and KD. Maybe those guys are just so good as ISO defender or as ISO offensive players that they're going to make anyone look bad. But Giannis has been able to be the guy that we always thought that he could be with the Bucks doing a bunch of switching, playing as a small ball center. Like this is all happening now. And the fact that they got PJ Tucker, that's been a huge yes. acquisition also to enable him to do a little more switching. Connaughton has held up I and mean, there isn't really an obvious place for the Suns to attack. And despite well, the fact they that they thought it was Pat Connaughton a whole hell of a lot of the time. Yeah, but Connaughton, I thought, held up yeah, well enough. I agree. You know, and, and they only went 21 minutes for Lopez. One thing I would say for the Bucs is that 
I still would try to give them more Lopez than Portis. You know, I don't think that Portis 18 minutes and Lopez 21. I don't think that Portis gives you a ton that Lopez doesn't. You know, Portis is that you're still going to be playing a conventional pick and roll defense with Portis anyway, and Lopez gives you more rim protection. I, I will maybe say Portis, Portis had, a some, better had some better transition defense than than Lopez. Uh, yeah, yeah. That one play where he busted. It, he does. Team. He does give you more energy in transition. That's true. Like running the floor in either direction. I think that's that's a, a reasonable point there. And he would probably argue he's a little better shooter than than Lopez, uh, but not as good defensively. So yeah, and he was plus 19 in this game. You can't complain about that too much. Uh, now, uh, by the way, on the, one point yeah. on the plus 19, if you switched it and Portis was playing the lion's share of his minutes, starters versus starters, and Lopez was playing right. the lion's share of his minutes without that, I think the plus minuses would look a smidge different. Yeah, uh, Bobby Portis looks a little better going up against uh, Frank Kaminsky for sure. So I would play Kaminsky zero minutes and just try to t- tough it out and go small. I mean, Nader is in a diff- difficult situation coming back from injury. And if Crowder or Aiton gets into foul trouble or Bridges... And I think I would just try to say, Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, like, we are going to let you guys loose here. You guys are great ball hawking players. We want you, we're just going to give you the freedom. Like, if you want to attack Giannis, do that and we'll rotate out of it. If you see a chance to jump in when he's got his back to goal or we're going to mix up the double team. I mean, they really, you know, they're not doing different things other than just this putting two on the ball on Middleton and pick and roll for a second like they're not really showing Giannis a ton of different looks like it's mostly been one-on-one coverage against him so I I think they could try to specifically when Giannis has the ball do that but Giannis has done a great job of scoring as an off-ball guy as well so I don't think that's a panacea for them by any means also want to talk very briefly about a fun game that I watched today the under 19 World Cup between France and the U.S. Chet Holmgren, who's projected to be a top two pick in 2022, is probably the biggest guy on the USA team, but he's going against uh, Victor Wembanyama, who is considered maybe the best prospect in the world, but won't be in the draft until 2023, most likely. Just turned 17 a couple of months ago, but he is just an incredibly intriguing prospect and he had eight blocks in this game 22 points did foul out in 27 minutes uh Holmgren put a couple of fouls on him uh, off of drives and just a really exciting guy I recommend re-watching this game went beyond it certainly looked like he is the best prospect outside of the NBA right now and with a 7-9 wingspan 9-7 standing reach I mean basically Rudy Gobert dimensions but probably well, he's extremely skinny but he actually has pretty decent feet like he was guarding guys on switches earlier in the tournament and he also is a really good shooter like he can make threes just fine he shoots it in the mid 70s from the foul line uh pretty mobile rolling to the rim i mean he can basically dunk flat-footed as well but he's uh you know you always worry about injuries with guys who are that big but he doesn't look like he is you know a plotting guy he looks like he has a proportional body for that size that he's going to grow into but just his touch his timing on shot blocks is amazing plays hard shoots it it has good touch around the rim just really exciting to watch him and this is just a, a fun game i hadn't heard of that many of the guys on usa i'm sure will become more familiar with some of them and obviously it's not close to usa's best players 19 and under you know that would be guys who are in the draft this year uh, most likely but uh, very exciting to see that i, I recommend checking that out on uh, ESPN plus if you have it and Holmgren was pretty decent too like he's very thin he can shoot face up and drive and is a very good rim protector also had some nice 
looking switch possessions as well so it's good to see guys of that age playing at a high talent level and in a really competitive environment it's a classic game ended up uh usa only won by two but they did better than uh the usa men's national team which is lost an exhibition to nigeria i didn't have a chance to watch that yet i don't know how much olympics we're gonna be able to do but i uh hope to be able to catch some of it that was not a, a great start the popovich era has uh not been very good for usa basketball so far but we got much more to get to here. Jalen Suggs scouting report and the offseason for the Portland Trailblazers coming up here. All right, time to get into some more draft prospect work here. And today's is going to be Jalen Suggs out of Gonzaga. I was really interested to take a look at him after some of the glowing reviews of his tournament performance in particular. Tell us here about Jalen Suggs, Danny. Sure. Uh, Suggs, the best measurements I could find for him, listed at 6'4", 205 pounds with a 6'6 wingspan. Suggs, this was, he was one and done at Gonzaga, but he turned 20 this June. His rookie year in the NBA will be his age 20 season. Um, from St. Paul, Minnesota, he uh, was the first Minnesota athlete ever to win Mr. Basketball and Mr. Football in the same year. He was a quarterback and defensive back and a four-star prospect in football, but he was a five-star basketball recruit, seventh in RSCI. Um, and he was he's played a lot for Team USA in FIBA, under 16, under 17, under 18. And as I thought about this briefly, it's like, oh, he played football. His name is Suggs. Is he related to Terrell Suggs? And the answer is, yeah, um, sort of. His he's his dad is Terrell Suggs' second cousin. So I was just interested in that. And also, Jalen Suggs, as ridiculous as this is, he played in high school with Chet Holmgren, who we will talk about about a year from now because he's one of the top prospects in the 22 draft. Suggs, the numbers at Gonzaga averaged 14.4 points, four and a half assists, five rebounds, two steals in 29 minutes a game on the Zags. 60% true shooting on 25 usage, 34% on 4.8 threes per 40 minutes and 75% on 5.3 free throws per 40 minutes. Yeah, so the question that there always is to me in looking at a point guard prospect that might go in the top five, does this guy have that all NBA type of upside to where you're feeling like this guy is going to be your primary ball handler on a really good offense, your best offensive player? What is your feeling on that, having watched Jalen Suggs? Not overwhelmingly positive, not as positive as I was thinking. So you Suggs, when, it, when things look good for him, him. They do look very good. He's physically talented and six foot four. You kind of wonder like, oh, if it can work. But what struck me watching film and in the early part, you know, I'm watching unfiltered, just un- just random plays on offense is like you see the athleticism go through it. And he does have some positive ones. Like there are a couple of nice splits of double teams and some good passing and transition. But as I watched more film and as I watched a couple of full games, what stuck with me for Suggs offensively is that despite all of those things that I do like, if we're, if we're evaluating him as a point guard, if we're evaluating him as the best offensive player on a team he doesn't have the shake like the handle where he's really losing guys or blowing by guys enough and so when remember that i mean gonzaga they were an unbelievable team they were undefeated until the last game of the season played in the wcc but this is an nba he's not like annihilating college talent and there's going to be a big jump and so that is a big concern for me because i thought about you, you think about the different types of point guards and yes he's more athletic than somebody like mike conley but i remember when i watched conley in college you could see that year at ohio state how it was going to work he was a talented pick and roll operator and so for me Suggs, it's more like maybe somebody like drew holiday or donovan mitchell where you didn't really see it in the film but they have the physical capability if they work really hard to get there well we, we may have some disagreements on how at the athletic he is and we can dial those down a little bit later on but i i agree with you that i watching him i didn't see what the absolute ridiculous standout skill was 
And if I had to pick the two things that might become that, uh, one would be his shooting. You know, he shoots it very well on balance. Interestingly, shot it much better off the dribble yeah. than on catch and shoots where he was horrible. Um, but, you know, I, I think that'll sort itself out in time. But he's not like a great free throw shooter. You mentioned only 76%. And uh, he would have some bad misses too. Um, but, you know, that was one thing I think, it, you know, shooting off the dribble, I think is something that could get to be a very positive skill for him. And then passing would be the other one. I think the, the thing that where I where I most often was like, oh, this is awesome, was some of his transition passing. Yes. That, that was really good. Some of the, the hit-aheads, you know, some, some of the types of passes you would throw as a quarterback, even those over-the-top sorts of, of looks. Now, I didn't see it as much in pick-and-roll and spread pick-and-roll. Uh, part of that, I think, is that he doesn't really draw the defense in that way. He's not getting on top of the defense. He's not forcing two on the ball as often to necessarily create the openings that he can then take advantage of i thought he did a very good job of finding the role man in pick and roll yes not as good of a job finding shooters on the weak side which with his height at the point guard position you think he would be a little bit better at that uh so but i, I think where i the two things where i was most unimpressed by him you hit on one of them which is kind of just the lack of shake uh you know he's got pretty good acceleration in a straight line but going side to side he's not creating much separation his it really only has one move that he could rely on to get by guys, which was the kind of stand up fake like he's going to shoot it and then do a quick inside out dribble. Uh, and even that was kind of relying on like getting the defender to stand up using his shooting ability. Um, so so that was kind of un- unimpressive to me uh, as well. Just to his, you know, if you watch something like the ISO film, it's basically all, you know, just the guy backs off a little bit and he shoots the jumper. It, it's not, he doesn't really seem to have like much of a package in terms of ISO ability. And he also, you know, a little bit of step back type of stuff maybe but you know not the stuff where he's just like breaking anybody's ankles which is that's what you want to see for a point guard prospect that you're going to be taking in the top five right, and like, then yeah think, ahead, think about the difference between Suggs film and Markel Fultz's where yeah Fultz didn't become that player but he was losing guys all the time and you know the handle and the crossover I mean Kyrie and one that stuck out to me I watched the uh, national championship game when they lost to Baylor and you know I'm focusing I'm laser focused on Jalen Suggs in those minutes he wasn't always guarding Mitchell the 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 Davion Mitchell yeah, the, D- Davion the Mitchell guard. yeah the the guy for Baylor I you know when I'm focusing on Suggs I saw Mitchell break more ankles in just that game than I saw Suggs doing all the footage I watched and I watched a lot and the to tie that in what was one of the parts that was really interesting to me so like in the very preliminary film I was excited about Suggs and I'll, I'll, I'll when we end I'll say kind of my early thoughts there because it tells the story but then I watched a game against UVA and then and I watched um some other stuff and I was feeling a little lower on Suggs and so and I had started with his pick and roll film like I do for everybody that we're thinking of as a possible point guard and then I I was like okay going through the synergy splits and then one of the other ones was isolation Jalen Suggs only 17 possessions but 1.2 points per possession which is phenomenal I'm like okay this is we're gonna see it we're gonna see him break guys down and do everything else 
And it was mostly just Jalen Suggs hitting tough shots. And that's great. You know, hitting tough shots, if you can do it at an NBA yeah. level, you can do it. But what you want to see... And it was the, usually against, like, some really slow-footed big yes. who had switched on to him as and, well. And so that's not what you want to see for a college prospect evaluating them for professional context. You want to see them beat the stuffing out of that player, whether it's somebody who's like-sized or somebody who's big and slow. You want to see them pulverize that player into a powder and then get a, get a shot. And that wasn't what Jalen Suggs was doing. And that is a big concern. Now, Suggs has a pretty, I mean, I would say it's a very good skill set if the shot comes around as a secondary playmaker for almost these exact reasons, where if you give him an advantage, he will do well on that. And that's why I, I was, I, you know, when I was watching his spot-up possessions, he drives more than he shoots on spot-up possessions as Spotify classifies it, because it's really like, you imagine a spot-up is, you get the ball with your feet set, what are you going to do with it? And Suggs... He's a confident jump shooter. He wasn't a great one in college and wasn't a great one from what I could tell digging through his high school stats. But he's confident, which is good. But he you know, would drive in those circumstances, whether it's finishing himself or two dribbles in a good decision. However, if that, like, let's say that's the worst case scenario for Jalen Suggs. And he's big enough at 6'4 with a 6'6 wingspan. And like he could definitely get stronger too, that he could play some shooting guard and play some off ball, whether that's at the two or the one defensively. But that is not an acceptable outcome for a player player in the top five of a draft, especially a draft that is well regarded, unless you're an all NBA level player at that. And he doesn't have the jump shot necessarily. So it's like his, I used to overrate players in this exact circumstance, but his floor, like, I think he'd be a competent player and a good player on a good team, but it's not that valuable a skill set in that way. Well, I I mean, I I think that he, I don't think, and we can always be wrong and we'll talk about how this might be wrong. Uh, You know, I don't think he has superstar upside. You know, I don't think he has all NBA upside, but I I think he could very easily be in kind of that Malcolm Brogdon, Spencer Dinwiddie type of range as just, you know, a solid point guard who's going to get paid 20 million a year and, and be a good starter and give you something on both ends and not, you know, I don't think he has a ton of like terrible weaknesses and, you know, again, at age 20, he was very good. Now, I think this might be a good time, too, to talk about the situation yes. that he was in because you're basically – this Gonzaga team is about as favorable a situation as there's ever existed in college basketball for a point guard prospect where they're running all the time. They're not – not all of their games are against high-level competition, although they obviously beat all comers until the national championship game, and they did have plenty of games against good teams. Uh, and they did a bunch of switching on defense, so he didn't have to do a ton of like getting over screens uh, as well. well. I, I have the stat um, on that, by the way. Yeah, Jalen Suggs only had 15 possessions that they classified as isolation defense in the yeah. whole season. Yeah, that that was interesting. I mean, that, they usually don't classify that many sure. of those in college basketball. So, yeah, I mean, he didn't get attacked, certainly. But no. I, I think there was – you would hear the announcers uh, as we were watching the film talk about him being like an unbelievable defender. And I think he's solid. But, you know, he wasn't like a guy who was heating up the ball, really getting into guys like that type of a defender. is more just solid positional stuff uh get some steals in the passing lanes i didn't think his hands were like unbelievable defensively so i think he'll be a a solid option you know certainly better than most star point guards look in their freshman season we've watched a lot of those guys uh yeah and he definitely competes and he's got some size i mean i was hoping maybe for a little bit more for him as a switch guy on like post-ups and stuff the few that we saw but he also is trying to like not get in foul trouble and stuff so i I think he can get better there he's got good strength obviously uh with the football background so uh, let's get a little bit more here into some of the things that uh, why it is that we don't think that he's going to be you know that superstar upside and i think that 
the other thing I would point to, in addition to not having a ton of shake, not being like a great pick and roll operator, being very just kind of upright offensively, is his finishing, which I thought was very odd. Would you agree with that? Yeah, he so Suggs, there were again, like I said in the early part, when it looked good, it looked good. Like there were some that kind of Lillardy finishes because he's so strong and we get around it. But then a lot of times he's just like driving into a bunch of people and getting nothing. And like I, I thought that Suggs, he's aggressive in his nature, you know, like incompetent. But there were times that that would get him into difficulty because there are a lot of times when the players are just bigger than you and you need to use craft, and he didn't use craft. Yeah, it was kind of a lot of his plays were just kind of what i call these college finishes where he's just kind of and again remember the how much shooting that gonzaga had around him where he's just kind of bigger than his guy just like working to a spot and then just like trying to shoot over him with like he sort of has a little bit of that jason tatum disease that we talked about in last year's playoffs the 2020 playoffs where he's going up around the rim and almost you know two hands on the ball almost shooting you know kind of a a normal shot he doesn't really get any kind of extension he doesn't have really much of a euro step game at least that he showed uh one hand finishes you know same hand same foot little like duck arounds you know your Shea Gilgis Alexander type of game doesn't really have any of that stuff either uh his floater game was not particularly impressive either I mean he was 9 of 14 on floaters like the stats actually weren't that bad as far as like his finishing but I also didn't think that like the floater was going to be or at least is an awesome part of his game now I think it's something that he could work on it and get it better um he's just not really comfortable shooting off of one foot like i don't think he has a ton of explosion he can get up off of two feet but you know like he had like a off the backboard dunk and transition that someone threw to him when they were like climbing around late in a game like he can get up for a decent dunk off of two feet around the rim when he's open but it's just you know you're not going to go in with a two-hand two-foot dunk very often as a point guard you're just well, not going to be in position for that sort of a play and and what's interesting we, we can use that to talk about jalen sugg's athleticism is that he definitely like i mean compared to his his brethren and gonzaga they're an unbelievable team but their their strengths were more skill and shooting rather than athleticism overall and i mean think about the west coast conference that they're playing against and a lot of it you know like so he looks good relative to that but for suggs yeah, the vertical was you know, the vertical athlete. Like, it's definitely good, but I don't think it's elite. Like, I, I you know, I, I went to college with Russell Westbrook. I, I got to see a lot of that. But I do like Suggs's feet. Like, when you think about it defensively, like, I think he moves his feet pretty well. He covers ground decently laterally, a little bit of front, like, north-south too, but not not insane. Like, this is, it's not the John Wall, De'Aaron Fox, rarefied air. I think he's probably pretty good relative to everybody else, but that would be the other way that I would be a much stronger believer in Jalen Suggs would be if he had that, like, if he popped to that level. And you didn't see it that much, even though he plays hard. Like, it's not like with, sometimes I criticize Devin Mobley, where it's like, it looks like he's floating, and maybe if he gave a shit all the time. Jalen Suggs plays like he gives a shit most of the time. And so you would see that if he had that level of athleticism you would see it more often than we did yeah i think i i would agree with that and then the other thing i i would say too is overall you would think he's a, a pretty smart player and you know generally makes some pretty good field plays uh, gets in the passing lanes uh, on defense largely doesn't make too many defensive mistakes but he also had just a lot of really like dumb plays on offense that just had no chance like one of them was just how often he would just get completely embarrassingly blocked at the rim like i can't remember another high level of prospect who would just go up with these no chance finishes and get it 
it absolutely thrown back in his face where he's just like he just like doesn't think the defense is there and then they just like spike it on his head um his his instincts are kind of weird with that like there were he's I, I talked with Evan Mobley about how I, I didn't think of him as as great an anticipator on defense. Suggs isn't a great anticipator on offense. He's like, that's why his, tra- to me, his transition passing was so much better than half court is because he can read the play again, like a quarterback, you know, he can read where guys are and understand where things are and make a good pass there. But in terms of this guy is going to be coming off of this screen and he's going to be open right then. It was more for him. This guy's open right now. I'm going to make that pass right now. And that's why I went through with Suggs, his assists and turnovers, which is a, a that's a, a thing you could do like and, and it's a great combination because sometimes you're actually more impressed with the turnovers than the assist Trey Young is a fantastic example of this you're like oh he was trying some shit it didn't work but he was tr- like he saw this and was trying it and the guy just got there there weren't that many like oh that's a great read and it didn't work and there weren't that many oh that's a great read and it did work for Suggs and a lot of times those plays are anticipation or having preternatural court vision like somebody like LeBron or Ben Simmons yeah and I think you know he turned it over on 20 percent of his possessions which again i mean this is the team one of the greatest offenses in college basketball history they're in transition a ton but yeah in the half court like he would just throw these passes that were just like auto reads and there was just a guy right there you know yeah. and he would just, or he'd get a lot of passes deflected like it really he would just have plays where he looked awful which is surprising yeah and one of the weirdest things uh, so Suggs did have some half court passes that I really liked so it was finding a guy in the opposite corner but something that I've just found weird they were always when his feet were set it wasn't it wasn't in a pick and roll like every like you know because I'm watching these assistant turnovers and I'm like I noticed at one point I was writing like oh nice pass nice pass and at one point I'm like oh my god all of these were where like when he was set like spot you know like in those sorts of circumstances and that does mean I think that there is some untapped potential there that he just like getting his head up a little bit more and he does a great job Suggs in transition of keeping his head up looking for stuff that maybe he can develop that you know by 24 25 but it is so rare for a player to be where he is as a pick and roll operator and become really good at that becoming passable becoming above average sure that happens all the time but to reach the level where he would be a threat for to be the number one overall pick not that we've watched Cade Cunningham yet but like it would be almost Almost unprecedented for somebody to go from where he is now to where that would need to be. Yeah, and you mentioned the pick and roll. You know, there's not much operation. It's not snaking the pick and roll. It's not getting guys on his back in jail. Uh, you know, I don't think he has quite the level of like dribble creativity uh, for that type of play, at least uh, at this point in time. Another thing that I thought was really interesting about his finishing was he just would blow layups that he had pretty good looks at pretty often as well. Now, that's something that I think he'll probably just clean up. Like, yeah, he was, I agree. Even the times when he was getting pretty good looks, uh, you know, it would just go off the rim like you're like like if you just saw where he was and you're like oh all right this is pretty good like he's he's open like if you just took a snapshot at him at the release you're like oh this is gonna go in another easy layup and you know he really blew like a lot of those which was surprising i wasn't quite sure what to make of that i think that's a problem that will probably uh resolve in time uh i think the the transition he's definitely good with like the hit ahead passes stuff he's not really a guy who it's like you know again like you talk like De'Aaron Fox John Wall Russell Westbrook style where it's like okay this guy just got the ball off the board and now he's pushing it down our our throats and we got to load to him or it's just going to be an automatic layup he doesn't have that sort of push that kind of athleticism that sort of finishing ability you know John Morant's another guy who's like that where like you're not when he's dribbling the ball at you in transition you're not just like oh my god we are 
scared like he is just running it down our throats here now he, he can beat you with the pass early on in the transition possession with the hit ahead but not as much so where you're just worried about him going right to the rim for a layup unless you have your big back or something like that well and it's interesting we're talking about players like i was i've been going back through point guards primary ball handlers that were taken in the top five range and it's interesting when you think about kind of putting Suggs in context and they're so different that's why i want to mention this guy is i was thinking i was just looking through the names and you know d'angelo russell went second back in 2015 and russell yeah he's significantly worse as an athlete than Suggs, just because d'angelo russell didn't have the burst like even if he had you know he has a decent handle to get past this guy that way but the half court passing and the operation that russell had was miles better than what we saw from jalen suggs and suggs like you that was something that well, i was thinking about it like he has a lot, bunch of nice passes to roll men and you're like well yeah one of the things that makes that easier is because there's nobody near them you know it's just the players in the pick and roll because it's kispert and all these other really talented players outside of it so there's going to be no help yeah no that's it again yeah i mean i think remembering what this offense was uh is pretty important and he would do a pretty good job in transition of kind of crossing the face of the defense then leaving it back for shooters you know i thought i thought that was something that he did a pretty good job on he also was always the inbounder and he threw some awesome passes oh, yeah. on yeah like he threw one that would just went like right by a guy's ear for a layup or he would find that guy in the weak side corner off the the baseline out of bounds uh so that that was very impressive let me see if i got anything else uh, oh yeah so so his jump shot um you know like his ability to rise up on balance i think is pretty good you know if he's going against the defender with some length i'm not sure how well he's going to be able to get that shot off uh, you know it, the way he dribbles is very interesting he'll dribble a lot with the ball in his left hand and he's always got his right hand like very close to the ball as if like he's about to pick the ball up and shoot even when he's you know just dribbling the ball up floor 50 feet from the basket or something like it's an interesting kind of style which can work at times but also like he's not able to he doesn't get the ball out away from his body he doesn't get low on his drives like Kemba Walker style it's all like a very sort of just upright compact style uh didn't really draw many free throws didn't see any of the really you know the bullshit foul drawing Trey Young type of game which I think is always a nice thing for a guy to have in his skill set um, you know again that's something that he might be able to get but he's also because the way you draw those fouls is because you're blowing by guys or they're really worried about their shot and they put their hands on you and then you can draw a foul but I don't think he was putting quite that level of pressure on the defense uh, I want to give the stats because we brought it up earlier but I, it's just so stunning um for the off the dribble and cat versus catch and shoot so this is per synergy yeah Suggs on catch and shoots 11 of 37 so that's uh 0.9 points per possession which is 39th percentile off the dribble 27 of 68 that's 1.1 points per possession which is damn good um and and considering a lot of those were contested like in some ways you would wish those were a little bit better shots but he was making them no matter what but like that's so insane like that is such a weird dichotomy like not like i mean first yeah. of all a guy shooting 0.2 points per possession better off the dribble than catch and shoots but he you know j it's just incredible yeah it's some guys who just grow up with the ball in their hands all the time are just more comfortable shooting mm -hmm. off the dribble and yeah and, and like you i noticed that he would turn down a fair number of, of spot up attempts but i i think that's gonna resolve i think like his form is good uh you know he shot what 34 percent from three like i think he's gonna get to being at least a league average-ish three-point shooter like that's the shot is one of the things that i'm least worried about uh for him in the nba defense 
Uh, very impressed with his defensive rebounding. Now, yes. this was a small team. They had basically one center, this guy, Timmy, and then they also would switch a lot. So those guys are on the perimeter. But Suggs, he'll really stick his nose in there for rebounds. Like That's that's impressive. That that defensive rebounding from the point guard position is always nice to have. And that's, that's also a indicator of just smarts, playing hard. You know, there's a reason why a lot of the analytical models really like guards who defensive rebound like that, particularly point guards. So with that, with the passing, like the way he gets some steals, like you think he's going to be a smart player, despite the fact that he would make these like really head scratching mistakes at times that I mentioned. I think I think he's going to figure that part out. I think he's going to end up being a, a good, smart player. Uh, you know, I wasn't particularly impressed by his ability to get skinny over screens. He does kind of play upright. Uh, when guys attacked him in ISO, I thought they were able to get pretty good separation against him. Yeah, like even guys that Suggs was more had physical advantages over, like you know, there, well, I, I understand you know Kihei Clark, this tiny tiny guard that UVA has. Like, yeah, he can cause guys a little bit of problems. But there was these like northwestern Louisiana point guards where you're like, okay, this guy's probably not going to be in the NBA. Apologies if that guy ends an NBA prospect. But I don't think so. And they're just like getting. <laughs> Well, you don't know his name, so we'll never yes. know whether he whether he is. Or so, not. like that sort of player getting a step on you or a half step on you is like hmm, getting that. And with Suggs defensively, this is the part they think can really be ironic. You're talking about some of the weird decisions. Is that sort of like some big men? He at times is more concerned and maybe this is because Suggs was a defensive back he's more concerned about like what's going on on the play than his guys part in the play and so there were times where it's like oh okay I can I'm close to this I'm gonna take a step in and do that and then his guy uh, this happened in the Baylor game like three times his guy just like cut to the basket or moved somewhere else and got a look when you're like you need to trust your teammates you need to stay with your guy unless it's the very end of a possession or something like that and I think that will be corrected in time Suggs he was too smart in other areas and also like in Zag like they kind of change concepts at different moments in time so you could see that maybe he was like trying to do two things at once yeah and uh, he's very good at breaking on the ball in the air like if let's say if Gonzaga would do a lot of fronting in the post particularly if they got a switch and so if they would lob it up he was really good at breaking on that from the weak side coming over and breaking up that pass or a long lob and transition that was thrown he would intercept that uh he had pretty good anticipation when he played hard and like there was one that I loved in the Baylor game where where Kispert did a flyby contest and Suggs was the next guy over, he just flew over to defend that player and, you know, they forced, prevented the, the easy three and then did a dribble in contested two because somebody else came in and that's a much better outcome than an easy three. And yeah, you're running the risk of that guy passing it to your guy and maybe your teammate doesn't make the rotation, but I liked how quickly he recognized that and that because Suggs is athletic enough, he was able to do it. And I'm interested in how Suggs NBA team will want him, Suggs, to change his body because I think conceptually with his size and everything he could work in a switching system where you like let's say that your team had a or either if he's running the offense or whatever like if you just had more like size guys if he's the smallest player that you have I don't think he's he's not as at this point at least as strong as like a Harden or Westbrook or Drew Holiday or those type of guys where it's like oh if you're going to switch they're they're like almost in some ways as good as a big man but I could see Suggs holding his own enough that he's not going to prevent you from running that kind of a system yeah maybe so like the his shorter arms 
for his size, I think are a problem. Like, I don't think he gets very good contests on jumpers. His, he doesn't his blocks, really have his blocks are very different. Like they're all like sized up timing. Like I mean, he had this crazy one, which I believe was a goaltend against UCLA. It was an unbelievable highlight, and he had a big one in the Baylor game too. Um, but they're not like the contextual like your guy. You're on your guy, and you just get up a little higher than him and get it. Yeah, he doesn't have like great hands defensively he's not like getting a lot of deflections on his man when the guy's trying to throw a pass like his steals are all just breaking on the ball anticipation those kinds of plays which obviously uh, has uh, some use but i i don't i think it's again i think he'll be better than your typical point guard but i don't see him being the sort of guy who's going to be able to guard wings due to the lack of length i mean i think he may just get way stronger and and then maybe be decent in the post yeah i think i but, think that's what's going to yeah. happen that's my theory on what happens right but i think like guys are going to be able to shoot over him like if he gets switched on to you know a good wing score i'm like not sure he's going to do that well yeah um i think that's about all I, all i've got in him i i guess the last discussion we need to have is just if it does like what would be the pathway for him being you know kind of justifying a top five selection getting into all-star all-nba consideration like if that were to happen which i think both of us say that's less likely but if that were to happen what would be the pathway tightens up his handle has maybe a little bit more burst to get so that he can he can beat his player a little bit more regularly or a lot more regularly that forces the help and then the reads that Suggs isn't making in the half court now become a little bit easier and he can make those also you you know reps and everything else can get there that Suggs is a not a necessarily an all defense level defender but like the next tier down and can be a better offensive player than a lot of those guys are like I I, there were times where I'm like because the intensity and kind of like the football player mentality you're like oh like somebody like Marcus Smart Boris I don't think he's going to be nearly as good defensively but he could be a better offensive player than Marcus Smart to be sure and so the dynamic offensive player who's maybe not like one of the 10 best primary ball handlers in the league but maybe he's 10 to 20 and that's incredibly valuable like yeah it's great if everybody could be lebron james and unfortunately no but not everybody can so i think that's the path and that he also that Suggs is a good enough shooter and eventually develops an off ball game so that you could pair him with another good player so i think that like that's something i thought watching the film on Suggs too is that i think he would fit well better with another really good like a better offensive player than him very better than most guards like you know like, if you put him next to james harden i think it would work yeah my path way for him to get to be really really good would be number one that he just becomes an awesome shooter off the dribble and so then then you got a really the type of guy where you're gonna have to change your pick and roll defense on him and i don't think he's gonna get there i think he's gonna be more solid in that area so would your model i'm trying to um no because conley's not really that type i'm just trying to think of like what you're like a player who's a decent example of that part of his offensive game because it's not it's not lillard or kurt i would assume no well yeah i mean that seems like very difficult for him to to get there but still you know maybe just a a tick below that type of guy a guy who can shoot it 40 percent from three or pretty close to it off the dribble uh on pick and roll and so now you've got to really adjust you can't just play a drop coverage on him now and then maybe his passing would continue to evolve to where he can work out of that he gets better at the pick and roll operation develops a pretty good floater i i struggle to see him being like a great finisher at the rim so but i think if he can develop a really good floater as well as a another counter 
against the defense and then you know becomes a really high level of passer and develops his pick and roll craft i think that would be the path for me but i if he doesn't become just like an unbelievable jump shooter i don't see how uh, he really gets to be like that you know a good enough scorer and distributor where it's like all right we're running everything through this guy on an nba offense so yeah i mean do you want to talk about kind of where you would have him among some of the point guards of the last few years yeah, we could do that. So 2020, LaMelo Ball. I, I would have him below LaMelo. I, I would, would too. Uh, he's not a point guard, but how about compared to Anthony Edwards? Uh, I I don't know. I'd have Suggs below Edwards. I, not by a ton, but because because the thing with Edwards was I thought he was he had a higher undeniability, which is something I value in a player. And while I think Suggs, it's sort of paralleling. We got asked recently on Green Room about a Kong move versus Wiseman, where I think it's entirely possible that Suggs ends up like, remember, I wasn't as high on Edwards as a prospect that, that he gets there. But I think Edwards has more star potential, which I value. So Ja, I would clearly have above him. Yes. Um, Trey and... Uh, Gar- and you, would you have Suggs over Garland? Yes, I think I think I would. Yeah, I would that's too. Actually, that's a, that's a good one to bring up. Yeah, I, I think I would. Uh, I mean, although we we saw so little of Garland, I mean, like I think Suggs to me has a pretty high floor. Agreed. I would say that much higher floor than Garland, and I like Garland's ceiling, but the floor part of it. Like I, I think he's going to be a starting point guard. I feel pretty secure about that. It's just again, and for that. if we're comparing to eighteen below Trey above Sexton, I don't think that's too challenging. Yeah, and I would say you know. I still regret having Lonzo number two on my board in 2017. Like I didn't want to do that. And I sort of just, I believed a little bit more because everyone else was high and I kind of just like let myself get talked into it. Um, And like the statistical translations were good, but I, I, I would say I would have him knowing what we know now, I would have him above Lonzo. Um, I, I do think they have like a few similarities um, with kind of just the way that they're effective as passers and transition players. Not so obviously, you know, so, is a much better off the dribble shooter for example he doesn't have he's got a few idiosyncrasies in his game but nothing compared to like what Lonzo did coming out so yeah I mean I would have him in the lower end of that group but I think he's just he, he could be a a solid starter at point guard is kind of what I view his most likely outcome as being so we haven't looked at everyone yet but I would just in a normal year I might be I would be a little disappointed to end up with him at number four like he may end up being the right pick there let's see what the rest of these guys look like and and frankly I mean just even at number four you look at some of the level of players who've who've gone at, at that pick you know getting a Malcolm Brogdon Spencer Dinwiddie type of point guard out of that pick like that's probably not really much different than what you would normally get out of that pick honestly but it's also just like if you're the Raptors and you pick Suggs it's not just like okay this guy's unbelievable this is like the future star that we need we have the rest of this group here and now let's just go forward with this group and Jalen Suggs because we think Jalen Suggs is going to be the star that we're missing right like I, I don't I don't see him as that level of guy yeah I, I agree with you there's a possibility but I wouldn't say it's a probability that he becomes that guy all right we got a little more time here so let's get to the offseason of the Portland Trailblazers Danny oh boy the Blazers with new coach Chauncey Phillips and same general manager Neil O'Shea 
have they have some challenges in front of them because Lillard and McCollum, Lillard on his on his supermax extension, McCollum on his extension. Um, they're making a ton of money. Those two guys will combine to make seventy point two million next year, and then each of them is under contract for next season, two more after that, and then Lillard has a player option for the year after that. So if you want to add it up, and we can get into an interesting kind of interesting question here. But overall, the Blazers have, including the dead money to Andrew Nicholson, if we say that Derek Jones Jr. opts in. They have about 115 million on their books that that is relying on the idea that Yusuf Nurkic uh, that they pick up his full guaranteed contract, which I think they should. 12 million is totally reasonable for Nurk. Yeah, so, and he has four four million guaranteed. Guaranteed. So yeah, I mean, that would be now. Yeah, Nurkic has been agitating for uh, an extension, obviously. Sure. Um. But so then, so roughly, if you're at 115 with where the where the cap and the tax are going to be this coming season, that means the Blazers are 21 million below the tax line. And that is 21 million below the tax line with potentially eight players on their books. So even just filling out the roster, that's going to take a lot of that 20 million. And what that means is Norman Powell, assuming they retain him, which you trade for a player who has a player option, who's going to likely opt out. You have full bird rights. You're going to do that. Retaining Norman Powell presumably puts the Blazers into the tax. Yeah, there's talk that he was going to get paid, that he's going to get twenty million a year. I'm. It's interesting because I don't see that offer coming from another team. Although they're probably probably one of the things that we may be missing in this analysis is that the Spurs and the Knicks are going to end up spending their money on somebody. Yeah. And well, and also the history of players like you could even bring up something like Rodney Hood, who was a Blazer, and it surprised us how much money he got. That there is an uh, that maybe there was just an understanding when Norman Powell went to the trailblazers in the trade for Gary Trent Jr., they had an understanding of what kind of money he was going to be looking for. And that yeah. maybe there kind of there there already is a line there. And part of why the Blazers were so enthusiastic about getting Powell was because they knew they could retain him. And in a, in a way that when you think of it as staccato, as like that he's, oh, now he's an unrestricted free agent, he can get whatever he wants. That's not always the way these things work. No, perhaps not. But it, I mean, it seems impossible that he's going to come back for anything less than like a $15 million Agreed. starting salary. And so, yeah, as you said, that basically is putting you in the tax, even if you fill out the rest with minimum. So there's really, now, if they were to allow Powell to leave, now, I guess the other thing we got to say too, is we are uh, assuming that Derek Jones Jr. is going to opt into his $9.7 million player option for next year. And I think we could very easily considering now maybe Chauncey Billups will say hey I kind of like Derek Jones Jr. I want to give him more of a shot uh and and I think maybe that's something that could be considered obviously Terry Stotts lost confidence in him once they got Powell he basically wasn't playing at all so maybe they will try to rehab him and have him be a part of their group or they will try to move on from Derek Jones Jr. instead maybe they feel as though Nasir Little can step into that spot but yeah, as you mentioned, they assuming that Jones opts in, you know, pencil in at least fifteen million for Powell and filling out the roster. Yeah, I mean that's getting you to five million to the tax, maybe even more than that. And so more likely than not, they are looking at the uh, five million dollar mid level for taxpayers. Um, actually, yeah, five point nine million. <laughs> yeah, it's actually kind of fun. To. It's five point nine and nine point five for the two the two mid levels. Oh, that's how I'm remembering it. <laughs> and it and I mean this can be a tr- kind of a point to talk about some of the other Blazers free agents. They have 
early bird rights on Mellow. They have enough bird rights to retain Ennis Canner if they want to. They also, theoretically, with Zach Collins, whether they make him a qualifying offer or not, they will have sufficient bird rights to retain Collins. And theoretically, if they did that on a lower money deal now that he got injured again, then you could theoretically do a bigger deal after that if he proves that he's healthy. And then they have, you know, non-bird rights on, I believe, on Giles and Hollis Jefferson. Um, So, like, there are ways that they can retain this group and have a reasonably deep team. And a lot of those guys aren't going to be super expensive, but is that necessarily what you want to do? Or as you and I would probably, as I would definitely argue, there were some holes that the Blazers had, like having more athleticism, which is why it was so crazy for Derek Jones Jr. Having another option who could handle the ball, you know, like somebody who, you know, it's probably going to be a minimum guy, but somebody like Howell Neto. And so running it back for me with them would be pretty uninspiring. Well, let's say they bring Powell back. Then they got all their starters there. Yes. You got Simons as your backup combo guard. CJLB is under contract. I think they like him there. I don't I don't know that I want to count on him in a rotation role for next year. They're, they do not have their first round pick that is going to convey to the Houston Rockets, number 23 overall. And so now you basically need, it would be nice to have one more bench guard as a fourth guard. And then they have no backup bigs under contract right now and zach collins uh, after re-breaking his ankle you know you're not going to count on him maybe maybe they'll bring him back on like a minimum or something like that just so he can continue to rehab in their building or perhaps maybe even uh that ship has sailed Cantor, obviously neil o'shea loves him we'll see whether chauncey billups is interested i mean to me the biggest thing that absolutely killed them and particularly in the denver series was that their bench defense was so atrocious and i think just given what an offensive team this is still and you've got dame you've got cj simons is a total offensive player as well i think you might want to change your approach to get more defense on the second unit also hopefully get someone who can play uh instead of Nurkic now the problem is Nurkic is not going to play that many minutes particularly during the regular season he's not going to stay healthy probably for the entire season and so you need like a pretty decent backup center and they went offense and Cantor is someone who can hit the offensive glass play pick and roll I mean you're not going to find a decent pick and roll center for the amount that they have who also is going to be decent defensively so they are going to really have some compromises same thing with you know if they want to bring back Carmelo I'm guessing he probably would just come back for the minimum and you know he is still an NBA player he does some stuff they if they could disabuse him of taking all of these uh contested long twos being second in the NBA and contested long twos taken might be <laughs> a, a little much for him at this point I, I can't remember whether he finished the season that way but about halfway through he was second to Brandon Ingram in that stat um yeah maybe like, you just to, just to, just to throw more, it out yeah. there I don't think he's going to be available for the price I would actually be angry if he were but like i would love for them to have daniel tice like where he could occupy that and then yeah. i would say you tice is gonna have starting off i hope so think. like that because like the dream would be you get him and then he uh, replaces nurkic as your starter but if you, you're not going to get him for the taxpayer well nurkic I, I think is better for what they want to do than tice i, mean, I just i, think th- I just think with nurkic see. is the availability questions and the risk of unrestricted free agents yeah you know who i actually think would be a very nice player as a backup center for the way that they want to play and who hopefully would come cheap would be tony bradley oh i think that's that like he's he's 
getting a little bit better as a rim protector uh you know he doesn't move his feet maybe as well as Nurkic but he can take up some space around there he can play pick and roll he's got softish hands and obviously can offensive rebound the way they like their centers too so he would be an interesting guy for me he doesn't really have much of an injury history uh I think for this team specifically I, I would like him a fair amount um you know Willie Cauley Stein could be maybe another interesting guy what about I what about the Boban gonna, huh yeah, I mean for the for the minimum. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He might actually get more than that somewhere. You, you know who else actually? You know what? Who I bet it's it, it very likely could be Demarcus. Yeah, I could I could see him being. You know, he, he and he and and Nurkic have some similarities. Don't they also he, have he some history? Oh, they have Nurkic. the same agent. Demarcus has. Demar- oh yeah, that's right. That's because. Uh, yeah, that's why they supposedly weren't interested in trading for Cousins at one point, I think, because they had Nurkic already. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe one of them has changed up since then. It's, it's been a while. You know, JaVale would be an interesting guy for them, too. Like, there, there may be some guys, but I think just like, just give me someone who isn't the worst defensive center in the league. Yeah. How about like that? Like, lo- I, I mean, the triumphant return of Robin Lopez, but he's, I, I think that he's going to be, I mean, was the best center that the Wizards had last year. I think he should get better offers than the Mid- yeah although although we're uh the the wizards obviously we talked about uh, how they have a lot of constraints sure financially but i'm just saying like somebody one of these teams that has a little bit more money and needs a center or or that even has the mid-level like robin lopez is a reasonable option there yeah, I mean, I think the big, the biggest question for their offseason, and you know, we're not getting into potential Lillard trades here, uh, which you know that could obviously change things up. There's also just the thought that maybe CJ would be traded, but and I mean, if you were, if you were these guys, would you want to do a Ben Simmons for CJ McCollum trade? That's the most talked about conception. I would seriously consider it, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Ben Simmons playing with an offensive player with the, who's better with the ball in his hands than Simmons like that because what happens then is it's like well okay how are you going to make this work Lillard you you basically wouldn't want Simmons involved in the primary actions but he could give them a transition identity and they need defense and with C I I love CJ in his best moments but when you think about where McCollum's game could go over the next couple of years I for I think Simmons there's a chance that it blows up in their face and that it's terrible and there maybe there are better options for for CJ than than Simmons in terms of maximizing the next two to three years but i like the idea that he he's so different that if it works it works and having an having a lead perimeter defender also they're weird meshing offensively but defensively i think that puts covington in a much better place to succeed which would you know like then covington and nurkic all of a sudden they slot in in places that make more sense yeah you know and and simmons and Covington together with us in a small ball group as your four and your sure. five. I think that could actually work a little better because Simmons is not the greatest like help rim protector, but Covington does do that aspect pretty well now your problem is getting like the guards to switch also Lillard actually is not a bad post defender necessarily and you know Powell is as your two okay maybe now you're gonna need you need one more guy though to fit into that type of I mean they probably tried this year a little yeah who's shot the ball better last year in in limited minutes or maybe they could try to bring someone else in Jones obviously and Simmons together would be likely pretty unworkable but I don't Um, think they're I don't think they're too concerned about that yeah, but I, you know, I wonder about because the fact that you have bird rights on Paul and you could bring it back. I mean, it really, his natural position is the two, obviously. 
seriously. I mean, that's the that's why it kind of was always a little weird to me that they're gonna trade for him because and just play him as a three because he's like not really a three. Um, now you could always grab a, a Garrett Temple of the world or some. Well, and, and Powell's like really not a three when you're one and two or Lillard and McCullough because yeah. then you the limitations just exacerbate from there. Even and when you're running a drop, the for lack of versatility and everything else. Yeah. Now you know I think if I were the Blazers and it was cj mccollum in a first round pick for ben simmons i think i would probably do that i don't know that it even necessarily makes you better but i'm a little bit worried about cj at his age the playoffs that he just had he was coming off the broken foot i thought he put a little bit of weight on when he was out with the the broken foot but uh and he started off the season great he was taking more threes but you know this might be a point where just sell on him because it's going to get worse uh with that contract and obviously i have big problems with simmons and you don't you know a lot of his value comes from pushing the ball up and you know maybe he can then kind of find lillard lillard can play more off the ball in the steph curry mode and, well, and, and he be fit, your draymond simmons and powell in transition would fit together well yeah um no i think that's right like and giving giving these guys some pace some easier offense they get better defensively you know i think it, they might end up taking a step back offensively but you still have lillard um and Simmons at least can make a play off a short roll if you're, he's going to screen for uh, for Dame and th- they want a double team Dame like that Dame Simmons pick and roll. Now maybe the teams would just try and switch that. Uh, and then you know if Nurkic is going to set the screen for Dame, whereas Ben Simmons standing, that, that obviously becomes a little bit more difficult. But well, whereas it only and, matters if you're actually getting something towards the basket. If you're not getting something towards the basket, then it might actually be okay. Yeah, and uh, you know the getting better defensively I, you know I, as i've said i think ben simmons is a pretty overrated defensive player but he still is uh, one of the best perimeter defenders that there is so that, that helps you to be sure he's certainly better than anyone they've had in there recently so i i think i probably would do that if i were portland and i wouldn't but assuming, i wouldn't as philly yeah. but that's because i don't think cj i mean i think they would in some ways be a better team but i don't i think that sets the bar too low for me personally yeah well i, I think both teams it's interesting i think both portland and philly just ha- have a ton of risk with Simmons and with CJ, right? Like both of those guys could really decline. And yeah, I, I don't know. Philly, if they then had that first rounder, they could do something with uh, also. And stuff. We've been saving the Philly one because we actually have to do a lot of work on this <laughs> on this potential Simmons trade. So though, as we go through some of the other teams they might trade with, we're, we're getting some of that done. So using the mini mid level, are you? What is your priority there? Is it another guard? Is it? Uh, I'd love to get a wing know. if you could, but the problem is there really yeah. aren't that many mini mid level like a three, so that you can sometimes have Powell with the two and everything, and that'd just be a nice thing. And maybe Nasir Little steps into that role, but I don't have any anybody especially like if Otto Porter weren't weren't hurt as much but if he were hurt that much then you wouldn't be able to get him for the middle mini mid level um I I would love Paul Millsap with this group mm-hmm. um you know and might think about that for the mini mid level we'll see I I he's the guy who I really have no idea what his situation is going to be like in terms of teams that that are interested in but it, it would it would be good for these guys to have the the possibility of playing a little bit smaller on the second unit and having a little more versatility yeah I mean Jeff Green or PJ tucker could also do some of that yeah tucker i think will have offers that are superior he should to, to whatever well portland especially because they i mean it's not guaranteed that he would start or close games for portland so and it's not like portland is a tier one championship contender like 
P.J. Tucker or Dan Will better have better offer, have superior offer. Yeah, I don't think they're going to have the scratch really to get into the wing market other than just, you know, kind of your your Tony Snells, your Tory Craigs, your Garrett Temples, like those lower, lower end guys. Maybe they'll bring Rodney return? Hood back. Yeah, that could be interesting. I think he would be a, a decent fit. I, I mean, you could see, like, Olshay has his favorites, right? Like, you could see once Rodney Hood gets waived that they'd bring him back at the minimum or something. You know a guy who I think would be a very nice fit with these guys is uh, Langston Galloway playing yep. that kind of Seth Curry role from a couple of years ago that you know they never really were able to replace him off the bench I think that's about all I got on these guys though Any, anything else you wanted to add I don't think they're going to trade Damian Lord this offseason we got a Watfo about that a little bit ago especially with with Phillips being there and I, I don't know what the paradigm shift would be for him but I'm not guaranteeing that they will start the 20 the 22-23 season with Lord maybe there's a deal at the deadline maybe there's a deal around the draft next year but those mega deals are so hard to pull off and I think I, I don't know if Willard has seen enough, like whether he is at the point now where it's like, it's definitely not going to happen. Might need one more year for that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like anybody is ready to really now to, to say that it's it's for sure time. Now, if they start next year poorly, then maybe that's where it, it comes to a head around the train deadline, but it doesn't seem like it's quite there yet. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 